our children are choosing these strategies all the time when they're resisting us, when they're saying no, when they are doing something that seems mystifying. They have chosen a strategy that is meeting some underlying need. And when we can understand what that need is, we can usually identify, I would say probably between 10 and 100 ways to meet that need. Hello, lovely ones. This week on the podcast, I speak with the wonderful Jen Lumenlun. She is the host of Your Parenting Mojo podcast, which was named Best Research-Based Parenting Podcast by Lifehacker and has been downloaded over 3 million times. After attending Berkeley and Yale and following a traditional career path in sustainability consulting, Jen found that parenting was her toughest challenge yet. She went back to school for a master's degree in psychology, focused on child development and another in education, and trained as a co-active coach to share what she learned with other parents. She's the author of the new book, Parenting Beyond Power, How to Use Connection and Collaboration to Transform Your Family and the World. I had such a lovely chat with Jen and quite an intense chat around our needs, our children's needs, the way that power and white supremacy and the patriarchy shows up in our parenting and in our relationships with our children. So we yeah, we talk about big, big stuff, but Jen has a wonderful way of breaking this down into really practical ways of this being visible for you and also really practical ways of changing this. And so I hope you enjoy this episode. We talk, yeah, as I say, a lot about children's needs in the episode. And it can seem, I think, very difficult to figure out what a child's needs are, never mind, you know, how you meet them. If children find that difficult to to say to you, and particularly with younger children. After we stopped recording, Jen told me she has a free quiz available for parents that helps you to identify the unmet need behind your child's behavior, behavior that many parents will find difficult like stalling or hitting or biting or throwing and then some strategies to meet those needs you can find the quiz at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash quiz and yes i hope you enjoy this episode please get in touch and let me know what you think hello jen how are you hi good thanks (laughs) That's good. Nice to have you on here. So I'm just going to dive in. I've got loads of questions for you, some of them pretty broad. (laughs) So we're just going to see where we go with them. But your new book, Parenting Beyond Power, is coming out on the 5th of September in the States. I'm not sure about the UK. I'll check that before we put this out. But I'd love to hear a bit bit about that and a bit about the research and and how you got into this work, because I'm fascinated always by people's journeys. So like, why did this interest you? Why does it matter to you? And yeah, how did you get into it? Yeah. Okay. So I I never wanted to be a parent. (laughs) I never liked children. I had no interest in it whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. And essentially decided I didn't want to be responsible for the biggest disappointment of my husband's life. And so became pregnant by choice, not by accident. And he was very surprised. (laughs) But yeah, and, and after my daughter was born, I realized I had spent so many hours crafting the birth plan. 
<laughs> it was something I could control and nothing. Yeah. I mean, it went through iterations. There were at least three drafts of it. And I had given no thought whatsoever to what's going to come afterwards. I was like, oh, when she's here, we'll figure that part out. The, and of course, we were assuming that because our baby had a vulva that she's going to be female. <laughs> and we, I, I always thought that, well, the first year is going to be the hardest because she's not going to be able to communicate. But after yeah. that, after she can talk, then I can reason with her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then no. parenting is going to be fine <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> so it didn't really turn out like that <laughs> sure. I think we're all like that a little bit hey? yeah this will yes. be fine it's just like yes. follow the steps it'll be okay yeah 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 and so I realized that I really, I mean, I don't have amazing parenting role models. My parents were very sort of traditional command and control type approach. Yeah. My mom actually died when I was young and my dad was really doing the best that he could with the resources that he had. Yeah. But looking back on it there, I mean, it was, it was not an easy, easy period in my life. Yeah. And so I came to parenting with a fair bit of trauma mm-hmm. that I kind of had a lid on by then and I was like you know what I'm I'm okay there's there's no problems here and then you know you get into parenting and the lid starts blowing off on a fairly regular basis and I'm like I don't understand what's happening here because I thought I was okay (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so 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 that that whole thing was happening kind of in my personal life and I decided to go back to school get a master's in psychology focused on child development another one in education I was like I can learn my way out of this problem (laughs) (laughs) they are books I'll just read them yeah yes exactly and then I will know what to do (laughs) yeah and so I started the Your Parenting Mojo podcast as a way of sharing what I was learning with other people. Okay. So I was like, it's silly to be doing all this learning and not share it with other, other people. And, you know, I would I would learn more from the average podcast episode than from the average paper for school, because yeah. for the podcast episodes, like I want to know this stuff for my child. I'm going to read 30 mm. papers and understand not just as, you know, what does one paper say about growth mindset, but what is the entire literature, the body of literature <laughs> on this topic say? Yeah. And is it even worth paying attention to? Mm. So, so that was how the podcast started. And then okay. really started to understand, oh, everything I do as a grown up is driven by my needs my my needs that are underlying my behavior and whoa the same is true for children yeah. <laughs> they're not just doing these mystifying things to drive me up the wall they are doing <laughs> them to meet their needs yeah um and then yeah there was you know a, a journey on uncovering my white supremacy as a parent as well which i very yeah. much took in public on the show um, but i would say those are kind of the major developmental steps in <laughs> how i came to be where i am today yeah and then how, did you just decide to write a book or did you say, I'm just going to collate all this information or how's the book come about? Yeah, actually it was, it was kind of a three year saga. Okay. <laughs> I was saga. approached by an editor at another publisher who is not the publisher who published this book in mm-hmm. September of 2020. And I remember it well because we were fleeing the wildfire smoke from a really bad wildfire oh, season wow. in California. Yeah. And so we were not home. And so this editor kind of, you know, called me up having heard me on one of her clients' 
podcasts mm-hmm. and said, you know, I think there's pers- there's the possibility of a book in your work. And I said, awesome. And we worked on a proposal Amazing. and it ended up not going anywhere. Her marketing team didn't think it would sell. And ultimately I, I think that was the biggest gift that I could have received because I think they were right. Okay, <laughs> It was very much a manifesto of this is, you know, mm-hmm. how I see the world and what I think we could do differently. Okay. And in the course of meeting my current editor and working through the the process of developing this book, it became so much more practical for parents. And I'm so pleased with how it came out from that perspective. Okay. And that's so much easier, I guess, then for people to take and use as opposed to, oh, this is Jen's view on the world. How lovely. And then move on. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So we sort of set up the view in the, in the beginning, and I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, a little bit more about what, what that view Mm -hmm. is. Uh, But the bulk of the book is, okay, if we believe those things true, yes, yes, we're on Mm -hmm. the same page here. Then what do we actually do differently in our day-to-day lives? So that's really the, the core focus of the book. And maybe let's just go straight to that. So what are the core beliefs of the book and what do we do with those? <laughs> yeah, I think this this really came up when I was working with parents, you know, after I started the podcast and developed a, a membership for parents because I realized they, even though I was putting all this information out there, they were still struggling because yeah. there's such a big discrepancy between hearing something on a podcast once <laughs> and yeah. actually being able to do something different with your child. Yeah. And so, you know, I was, I was working a lot with parents and I was seeing the, these two things happening at the same time, right? There's huge social challenges out in the world, things like white supremacy, which leads to racism, patriarchy, where we're really in these power over relationships yeah. with, with other people, with our children, capitalism, where the sort of the system where things are privately owned and the way to create more wealth is to extract things that are free from the earth and transform them into things people will pay for. And so I'm looking at all these systems, which have hurt so many people mm. out on one hand. And on the other hand, I'm working with all these parents who are struggling with their children's behavior. And it's like, my kid resists everything I do. And (laughs) parenting is so hard. And it seemed as though these were two completely different buckets of problems. Mm. And what I realized was these are not two different things. These are connected. Like they cannot be more intertwined. (laughs) And the ways that we interact with our children on a daily basis in our lives and in our families shapes how they will go out into the world and treat other people and what systems that they consider to be normal and just a part of life and mm. um, and that we will perpetuate or that we will try to heal from and try to challenge where we see these things grow up. And so the, the premise of the book sets up white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism as really the three overarching forces that have created massive trauma. And I kind of walk through my history and point out, you know, this, this is where I see this showing up. This is where I see this showing up. Mm. (laughs) And so that, so that readers can kind of look back into their own histories and see, oh yeah, similar kinds of things happen to me too. Mm. And we can start to see that some of the interactions that we may be having with our children, like I told you to do it this way. (laughs) I told you to get in the bath, right? Mm. This very command and control structure that so many of us grew up with. perpetuates these very same systems that have hurt us so much. Mm. And so if we want to be in a different relationship with our children, that's aligned with our values, right? And and I'm assuming since you reached out to me, you uh, our values are somewhat aligned Mm. (laughs) and there will be many people in the world 
who do not share our values and that who think that, that that things are going wrong in the world for very different reasons, right? That people demanding that their rights being respected is a sign that things are falling apart. <laughs> and that the solution is that there's insufficient morality and we need to restore power <laughs> at the top yeah. to fix yeah. things. Yeah. So, so, so we're not talking to people who believe that. We're talking to people who think, okay, if we want there to be a world where everybody is truly respected, mm. how do we start creating that world? One way we can start to do it is to do it in our relationships with our children at home. Mm. Oof, so powerful and so much unlearning in this learning. Yes. So, yes. so from my work, I come at like the, a lot of the body implications of that. So how, like, you know, saying in your head, it's just it doesn't appear at bath time. <laughs> um, like, it does not. No, it's funny that, is isn't not, it? Yeah, this is not yeah. a bad plan to happen at the end of the day. And so I'm always in, like interested in the intersection between like what we believe and then what has been baked into our bodies and and how that comes out and how we move through that and heal from that. So yeah, I'm fascinated to hear how that came up for you as well, like in your parenting journey. And you obviously like you you've kind of pointed to traumatic things and I think, yeah, yeah, we'll all have these, but like, how did they manifest and how have you moved through those things? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, for, for me, one of my biggest triggers was being interrupted by my husband, which sounds, Mm -hmm. you know, really random, but our triggers tend to be really random. And I was actually in an interview with an expert on intergenerational trauma. And she's explaining to me where this stuff comes from. And all of a sudden it was like, ding, ding, ding. You know, when I'm a teenager, my father used to, I mean, to me, my memory is it was almost a daily basis for this period Mm -hmm. in my teenage life when I would be called into his office in in the, you know, the room that he worked at home. Mm -hmm. And some some failing of mine would be pointed out and there would be a very long lecture (laughs) and at times he would be super angry and he'd work himself up you know he never hurt me but he would he would be you know Mm. very very vocal about his his ideas about my failings eventually he would talk himself out of it and all I had to do was stand there and not say anything except you know try and make it sound like I was paying attention some of the time and mm -hmm, you know confirming that I was still there in some way but you know mentally I was somewhere else I was completely dissociating from from this experience and so you know when I'm starting to explain something to my husband and he interrupts me it was just like boom (laughs) You're there. Yeah. I'm right back in that place where I have no voice. Mm. <laughs> and so, 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 yeah, so that experience is deeply baked into my body. Right. And so, for, for many parents that I work with, you know, I run an entire course called Taming Your Triggers because, because I work with so many parents who are, who are saying, you know, I, I believe that I want to be in respectful relationships with my child, but I can't stop yelling at them. Why, why is that? Why, mm. where is this coming from? And because our culture teaches us it's the child's behavior that's the problem, we think, oh, if I can just get my child to stop doing what they're doing, then I won't need to explode anymore. (laughs) And when in reality, chances are, if we can persuade them to stop doing this thing, they'll just start doing this other thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to make us explode instead. Yeah. (laughs) Because there will be other triggers for us that are coming in our lives. Um, And then secondly, of course, we're never actually addressing what is the reason why 
we're feeling triggered in the first place. Mm-hmm. And for some parents, I find that just that understanding, and, and that was the case for me, just the understanding of where this comes from is enough to produce a shift. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I get it. Now it makes sense. And yeah, I'm still irritated by my husband doing that, but it's nowhere near what it used Not to as be. Powerful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it really is. But for many parents, I find that, that just knowing is not enough. Mm-hmm. And you almost have to kind of be with that learning in community with others to actually make it transition from this is what I know to this is what I believe. Mm. And I'm thinking of an example of a parent who, whose mother was an alcoholic, who, you know, the mother literally doesn't remember so much of this parent's childhood. And this, this parent has given me permission to share a story. And, and so the parent in, in the very first day in the workshop, she's looking at hundreds of other parents introducing themselves and seeing, oh my goodness, these parents are all doing their best and they are all screaming at their kids. All of a sudden she sees her mother in the same way. She's just a 20 something with a whole bunch of unresolved trauma doing the best she can. Yeah. And she said before that she knew in her head, she wanted to forgive. And as soon as she saw that, she was like, and suddenly I am forgiveness. Mm. She'd taken it on in her body in a way that she couldn't before. And she yeah. could actually genuinely forgive her mother and their relationship has really blossomed. And it's, it, you know, she's not carrying the weight of that trauma around every day anymore yeah. because she has actually taken on that forgiveness. It's incredibly powerful. Oh, yeah. It's going to be like a big lump in my throat. I think that's what I found surprising about parenthood as well. And I, I love, I just want to say, I love that you said you didn't want to be a parent because firstly, I think we don't say stuff like that enough. I think that's yes. so important like to say, yeah, I I did want to be a parent, but I wouldn't say for any healthy reasons. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't really interrogate those. Like I just wanted to be a parent. But <laughs> and I think that's yeah. So also when I came into it, I was shocked at like the traversing of kind of intergenerations. So there would be like insights around like, oh my mum, this makes sense, or like grief around myself, like, oh, I can't believe, you know, when I was this age, or like it just blows open, like you say, all those lids. And you can never, well, I cannot predict, <laughs> you know, what's mm-hmm. gonna happen. And I don't think, you know, I've never met anyone that can. Like you have an idea about where things will go, but it's so surprising in the way it can sort of knock you off your feet and the power with which that happens. It's really yeah. like, it's really something to see and yeah. to hold. One of, yeah. one of the biggest trends I see is parents starting to explode at their children when their children get to the same age that they were when they experienced some kind of trauma. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, a parent moved out, a parent died. There was some sort yeah. of big transition in the family and mm. their child gets to the age where they were when they experienced that. And maybe their, you know, their remaining parent was struggling and, and was having a hard time and, you know, the parenting under suboptimal conditions and mm. maybe shouting at, you know, the parent that, that I'm working with. And all of a sudden the, this, this parent's own child then starts resisting and the parents thinking to themselves, okay, I'm a respectful parent and I want to behave in this way and I'm going to stay calm. But nobody stayed calm at me and I would have been yelled at if I resisted my parents. Yeah. And so there's this massive tug of war happening. And, mm. and so that's why I think a lot of parents really, really have a hard time. So yeah, definitely looking out for those shifts where, where, where parents experienced really big shifts in their lives that were difficult to cope with is, is the biggest red flag I've seen for yeah. predicting struggles. Yeah. And and I guess like some of the parents I work with are like perinatal. So it's also 
like there's not memory around a lot of that stuff and so I think that can be a shock to people just going um like the toddler situation is such a kind of common one where people are again have these beliefs of like this is how we want to do this and yet like something rises up in you like if I had done that when I was little what would have happened to me and it's yeah that all becomes enacted it's so like fascinating if you (laughs) reading about it and dreadful if it's happening to you (laughs) yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah so can you tell me a little bit more about resistance and like the power of resistance with kids yeah and so you, it's funny, you mentioned the toddler years, because obviously that's where resistance tends to come up. And, you know, so much of what our parents were doing with us when they were trying to shape our behavior was they were trying to shape us to be successful in our culture. Mm-hmm. And of course, we live in a white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist culture. And whether they saw that and they were doing it consciously or they didn't consciously understand it, but they knew, right? They they knew uh, that they had to shape us. That shaping process hurt us, right? And and so, and that shaping happens in in so many aspects. I was thinking just before I came onto this interview, I had confirmed with you that you don't release the video, so that I'm wearing casual clothes. I I did shower this morning. I didn't fluff my hair up. But if you release the video, right? I know that mm-hmm. it is not okay for me to show up not fluffed <laughs> for an interview. Mm-hmm. I learned that from my family. I learned that from being in school. There are ways that is acceptable for a female presenting person to show up. Yeah. And I need to conform with those ways or face rejection, right? Mm-hmm. That if I show up as my true, authentic, wild-haired self, <laughs> that maybe your listeners or viewers, if they were viewers, wouldn't respect me. They, they mm-hmm. wouldn't think that I had anything useful to say. And so I have to constrain the ways that I am viewed to conform to what is expected. And that's what our parents were doing to us. Mm. That's what our culture was doing to us. And so when our parents said to us, you know, with, with the, just the, the best intentions at heart, you know, are you sure you want to eat that, honey? You've had a lot already, right? And, and they're telling us, deny your need for food, deny your need for nourishment, because our society privileges thin-bodied people. Mm-hmm. When our parents are saying, you know, maybe our mother, who can ju- can be an enforcer of patriarchy just as much as fathers, you know, yeah. you, you, I told you not to antagonize your father. You know that makes him angry, right? Mm-hmm. Father, a position of power at the top of the heap. Mm-hmm. When, when our parents or our teachers said, oh, I know you love art, but how are you going to pay the bills? <laughs> That is shaping us to perceive paid work as superior to anything that we do for fun or anything that is not compensated well. And so we receive these messages throughout our lives to shape us. Mm -hmm. And if we don't consciously see that, we continue to perpetuate those messages with our own children. And just as though it hurt us to, to be told, your needs don't matter, put your needs in a box and show up in this way. And then I will reward you with love and belonging and acceptance in our family. And until you can do that, you're going to be kind of ostracized, right? So we very quickly learn, okay, I have these needs. I'm going to ignore those needs. I'm going to put them over here, try and forget about them. And here I am 
I'm showing up in the way you want. I'm going to be calm. I'm going to be rational. I'm going to use my words. (laughs) Mm. I'm not going to answer back. I'm not going to make my needs known. I'm going to prioritize your comfort and safety. Then of course, that is what we, how we continue to show up in the world now, particularly as female oriented people. And we will pass these lessons onto our children and it will hurt them just in the same way as it hurt us. Yeah. It's, it's staggering. And it's also, again, for me, it comes back to that grief piece of all the missed lives and missed op- mm-hmm. like opportunities, not in the way we always talk about, but like missed opportunities as experiences and the shutting down of that happens internally, externally. Yeah. It's like, it's actually devastating. Yeah. And we're told that it's our fault, right? And our problem. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, one in 10 women is on antidepressants. Yeah. In the US, it's fire. And so we're told that if you can't cope with the world, the problem mm. is within you. <laughs> yeah. So you better go and fix it. <laughs> mm. Well, okay. So we say one in 10 women is on antidepressants. Does that mean the system's working for 90%? Well, no, I'd say there's a big chunk that could be diagnosed and haven't been. There's a big chunk of people who have, who have learned, who have internalized this message of my needs don't count. I'm not going to put my needs out into the world because they will not be met. And so, so it seems as though they're successful, right? In the, mm. in the world, they are complying with the system when actually the system is still not meeting their needs any better than it is meeting the needs of somebody who's depressed. So what if we could say, this is not a personal failing on your part. What if we could look at this and say, wait, the system is not serving us. (laughs) What if we could change the system? Mm. That to me is the really cool potential. That is very exciting. And that's the angle I come at with my relationship work, because that's mainly what I do around our relationships can't thrive in this system. This is not a you problem necessarily. This is a systemic problem. So I'm so interested and I'm particularly interested because you're from Berkeley, right? Like in that world. I, this is where I live. Yes. I'm actually English originally. (laughs) I'm wondering if you can't even hear it anymore. (laughs) I don't think I can. I'm the, I'm the literal worst at picking up accents. So your English English listeners are probably very confused right now because they're hearing 20 years of the U S on top of years of uh, being in England. But if I say centrifugal, they'll, you you know, they'll, they'll be with me. (laughs) Not centrifugal, which the Americans say. Yeah, that's always like hurts my ear. Like, yes, said what? yes. <laughs> so, so how how is it that you have this awareness of mm. all these systems and how they're at play and how they mm-hmm. influence your life particularly? But and now that you're a parent, how mm-hmm. do you like marry those things, or and how do you live in a way that isn't damaging? Yes, there's the the fifty million dollar question, right? <laughs> Come on, Jen. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the first step is really seeing it, right? Mm-hmm. Is is seeing that uh, I have these values, and I'm assuming your listeners do share our values on social justice issues and yeah. the way that we want to show up in the world, and we probably are on board with respectful parenting, and we're thinking, yes, I want to be with my children in this different way. And the struggle is, and I grew up in a very conservative, patriarchal family where my needs were not seen and met and respected. And so how do I bridge that gap? 
is essentially what we're trying to do. So, and so I guess what I would start by uh, looking at is, is really the, the core idea that underpins uh, everything that is in the, in parenting beyond power and all of my work, which is that all behavior is an expression of a need. And I think that that is, you know, that's a phrase that's tossed around a lot in respectful parenting circles right now. You know, all, all behavior is is a an, all behavior is an expression or is, is trying to tell us something. But what is it trying to tell us? Is it's the key part, yeah. right? And and so what it's trying to tell us is it's an an, an expression of an unmet need. And so an example that I often come back to a lot is, is uh, you know, I un- you, our dishwasher is broken right now, but when it wasn't broken, I would unload the dishwasher pretty much every single day. And so th- there would be times when I would be thinking to myself, why am I always the one unloading the dishwasher? Why is my husband never unloading the dishwasher? And so one day I picked a fight with him over this. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, there it would be nice if just sometimes you would unload the dishwasher. And so what's going on here is, is not that I have a need for him to unload the dishwasher. The strategy that I have chosen is for him to unload the dishwasher. The need that's underneath that is I have a need for collaboration Mm. in my relationship with my partner. Mm. And so when I can see the strategy that I've chosen Right. And we choose these strategies all the time in our relationships with other people. Our children are choosing these strategies all the time when they're resisting us, when they're saying no, when they are doing something that seems mystifying. They have chosen a strategy that is meeting some underlying need. And when we can understand what that need is, we can usually identify, I would say, probably between 10 and 100 ways to meet that need. So, if I'd gone to my husband and instead of saying, you know, can you just unload a freaking dishwasher and <laughs> really kind of come at him about it? Yeah. If I had said, I would love to feel more connection and collaboration in our relationship. And I'm wondering if we can talk about ways to make that happen. Mm. Would he have been receptive to that? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> we could have found ways to meet those needs by maybe, you know, some of those ways involve him unloading the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> some of them involve maybe him loading the dishwasher in the evenings or mm. taking our daughter out so that I get more working time or doing the grocery shopping so that I'm not doing it or, you know, any one of a hundred other ways that we could mm. collaborate in our relationship. And so I could get my need for collaboration met. And maybe many of those can also meet his needs as well in our relationship. Mm. And that's ultimately what we're doing here is we're working to find ways that meet our needs, which I mean, for many parents I work with is just a flabbergasting idea. I work with parents who say, before I met you, I didn't even know that I had needs. <laughs> Never mind how to meet them. And I was the same. I was exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. Um, so how can we see those needs? And then how can we meet those needs on a more regular basis for us and for mm. our children? It's such a beautiful way of of looking at that as well in terms of not getting stuck on the content. And I'll again, do this sort of collaboration with clients around and couples around, like, we're not actually fighting about the dishwasher. And people have like some some (laughs) sense of that, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes they're like, just do the flipping dishwasher. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, that's the hill they've decided to die on sort of thing. And that, yeah, really sort of stuck place that we all get into at some point. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that beautiful book by Mara Glatzel called Needy? 
Yes, I have just released a podcast episode with her. Oh, wow. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) She is so lovely. I've chatted to her, yeah, twice on this podcast. And she is, yeah, just a wonder. I've loved, like, looking through that book and I've just been recommending it far and wide. Yes. Yeah, Um, I highly, highly recommend it as well. The one thing that I would encourage people to do that as they're reading that is to to really try and get clear on what is the actual need here. Because sometimes Mara will mix up needs and strategies to meet needs. And the more clear we are about separating those two things, Mm -hmm. the easier our life gets. Okay. And so I think that's especially important in our relationships with our children when it seems as though, you know, my need is to get get out the door in the morning. <laughs> right? That's not really a need. Yeah. My need is for collaboration with my child, for responsibility toward my coworkers, you know, there are other needs underlying that. Mm. Wait, oh, my child has needs too. Why is my child resisting in the morning? Mm. Um, An example of a parent that I used to work with and they would get in this fight every day when they're trying to get out the door. A parent saying, put your clothes on. No, put your clothes on. No. One day the parent says, why don't you want to put your clothes on? The child says, because I like knowing that you were the last person to touch them before I get dressed in the morning. Right? Need for collaboration, for love, for care, to be seen, to be known. Is the parent willing to meet that need? Yes, of course. The parent hugs the clothes, the child puts the clothes on willingly. There's no fight anymore. There's no Mm -hmm. resistance because the child's need is met. And that means the parent's need gets met as well. And so that that's that's where separating the needs from the strategies, I mean, you can see how critical it is, right? If you're seeing mm-hmm. getting your child dressed is that's my need, then it doesn't yeah. you can't find the potential solutions that then you can find stuck. when you can see my child is looking for you know connection with me mm. in the morning. Okay. And this in the book you talk about the cupcakes, right? Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. do you want to talk a bit about that now? Sure. Yeah. I was basically looking for a way to kind of a memorable way (laughs) to uh, help parents see what are the needs that come up on a regular basis, because Mm -hmm. there are lists of needs available online. You can Google needs lists and you can come up with them. In the book, I have a shorter list because I think some of the online lists are so long. You look at them, you're like, how am I supposed to know (laughs) what my need is? Never mind what my his need is from this massive list. Yeah. And what I've seen through working with parents and children is that over and over again, they're expressing the same needs. And these may change over time, but they're relatively stable. So what you may find is that your child is always looking for autonomy. They always want to make the decision about something that they feel is meaningful in their life. Mm. And so that would go up in the top of what we call the cherry on top of your cupcake, right? That's a super important issue. For some kids, sensory needs are paramount, right? Like I cannot stand the feel of seams in my socks <laughs> and nothing is else is going to happen in my world until my feet are comfortable in my socks. If you have a kid like that, you know, they're, they're, it can be challenging to even understand what is the thing mm. that is created that difficulty. Once you find it and you can find a sock that works, then everything else becomes more manageable. Their need is met. Mm. So we're looking for these these cherry needs at the top that they're meeting over and over and over again on a daily basis. Mm. And that resistance is telling you, I have a need that isn't being met. So we're always, when we're in a situation where our child is saying, no, I'm not doing that, some sort of resistance, we're asking ourselves first, is this a cherry need? 
Is this autonomy? Is this a sensory issue? Is this whatever we see coming up over and over again? Mm -hmm. If it's not one of those things, then we look to the frosting. I, I was going to call it the icing layer because, of course, I'm English. We think of icing, not frosting. But icing is kind of thin. Frosting's a bit thicker. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're going with frosting here. And so so that the frosting is sort of the next three to five needs that come up most often. And so those might be things like you know connection with you. For some kids, that's a cherry need. For other kids, it's a frosting need. So we. You know, there's a lot of interplay here, but basically we're we're considering these cherry frosting needs first. And then if we're still not understanding, then we go to the cupcake underneath, right? The cake layer. Okay, that's and that's the rest of the list. That's all the potential possibilities. But because yeah. we've gone through the cherry and the frosting layers first, yeah. you know, a good chunk of the time we're gonna find the need. Yes, it's autonomy. Okay, yes, I can allow my child to have a say over some aspect of this decision. Yeah. They don't get to decide whether they brush their teeth. They can decide what flavor of toothpaste, which toothbrush, where do we brush, which toothbrush do we brush first? <laughs> you know, 10, 10 other things they can decide about this. We yeah. can meet their need for autonomy within the situation. And then the resistance vanishes. And then my needs for collaboration, for ease, for rest are met as well. Mm. Oh, and I love that cupcake because it'll stick in my mind. I'm very <laughs> visual. So I feel like, yay, oh, it is I job. <laughs> job done. And how do you talk about this with kids? Like what what language do you use with them around this? Obviously yeah. it's age dependent, but what Yes, do you say? it is. Although I would say it's less age dependent than most parents think, right? That's always one of the very early questions I get from parents is at what age can we start doing this? <laughs> And what I often find is that with a three-year-old that you've been talking about needs and how can we find a way that meets everybody's needs, mm. by the time they get to three and a half, they're able to start identifying ways that we can both meet our needs. But if you're talking to a 12-year-old who has learned over a decade I'm going to say how I feel. I'm going to say what my need is. And that is going to get steamrolled and nobody's going to listen. And my parents going to make me do it their way. Then they're essentially going to function at the level of a three-year-old when we're trying to understand needs because they have been trained not mm. to even see their needs anymore. Yeah. So as much as parents want that guidance on what can I do at what age, it's much more complex and nuanced than that. Sure. So, so where we want to start is is looking for that resistance, right? Looking okay. for resistance in our children, which is identifying their unmet need. Mm -hmm. Another thing we can look for in ourselves is our feelings of frustration, of anger, of resentment, mm -hmm. because that indicates we have an unmet need. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna start with one of those two places. It's usually easier to start with your child's need because then they are invested in finding a solution. <laughs> And so one of the best ways to start is to look for a situation in which you are kind of already willing to say yes to the thing the child is suggesting, yeah. but maybe there's a little bit of a hesitation. So maybe the child is asking for a candy and it's a couple hours until dinner and you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit worried right now because I want to make sure that you get good nourishment at, at dinner time, right? That's my need is, is mm -hmm. to keep your body safe and healthy. Um, and I'm seeing how excited you are, right? You have a feeling of excitement, full experience of eating that delicious candy. <laughs> and so uh, I wonder if we can find a way that meets both of our needs. And we're kind of handing the ball back to our child and yeah. offering for them to generate ideas. 
maybe they say, you know, what if I eat one now and one after dinner? Or what if I eat it with dinner? (laughs) Or, you know, any one of 10 different ideas that they could come up with. Mm -hmm. And if you can grab one of those ideas and say, you know what, I think that actually does meet my need to keep your body safe and healthy. Then we can say, you know what, we found a way that meets both of our needs. And then when the next issue comes up, maybe they're resisting getting in the bath, we can point back and say, hey, remember the thing with the candy? And we found a way to meet both of our needs. I think that we can find a way to have bath time meet everybody's needs as well. Can we try and figure that out? Can we try and understand what your need is here and what my need is here and try and find a way that works for both of us? And so we're pointing back to that success to say, I think we can do this again here. Let's go through the process and see if we can actually meet both of our needs. And probably 90% of the time, we can find a way that meets both of our needs, which is a profoundly different way of being in relationship with children Mm -hmm. than I've decided this is how it's going to be and you're going to do it that way. Oof, yeah. And so I'm just thinking about the like the ramifications for the world. Mm-hmm. Like let's just blow it out. <laughs> so I'm excited by what this means, like for education. So for me, I am I struggle with school. I really struggle with school. We're not in a position to do homeschooling because we only recently moved here. I need to work like mm. most of the time. And it's on option, but I see a lot of the stuff that happens all well-meaning and, you know, but just so much restriction around like when you can go to the toilet, when you can eat, like I I find that stuff really almost like physically repellent. Like it's just so problematic to me. Um, And so this type of work is really excites me. So what do you think um, should or could change if we, (laughs) if we just put the cape on and and adopted it? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a massive, massive question. Um, one of, sorry, th- these are my questions, Jen. <laughs> I only <laughs> ask massive, earth, earth-shattering, altering questions. Yes, sorry. yes, and I will say that here in the U.S., I, I don't know if it's the same among my British listeners, but here in the U.S., I, I tend to experience some resistance to my ideas on learning because. I think that a lot of parents who describe themselves as progressive, as liberal, are very invested in public education because they see it as an equalizer, right? As a yeah. as a way of leveling the playing field. And I see it a bit differently. So I when see, you're saying public education, you meaning free. I mean free education. Thank okay. you. Yes. Okay. Not, not okay. Uh, private school. Yes. Okay. I, yes. Yeah, I'd yeah. forgotten the, <laughs> the public private uh, difference in language. Yeah. So yes, free, free universal education as being a great equalizer. But what I see is very much what you're, what you're describing and that everything that we are teaching children in school is actually about training them to take their role in society. So patriarchal power structure, obviously, right? The teacher is in charge. The teacher knows what you should know. And even, you know, the teacher is not at the top of the food chain here. There's the curriculum or body that is saying, this is what children need to know Mm -hmm. uh, that is percolating down through the teacher who has very little autonomy in in this process. And the children at the bottom have basically no autonomy to make any decision about their bodies. (laughs) Raising your hand to go to the bathroom, getting a hall pass to go go out uh, and do that. Um, 
the tracking, right? The smart kids are being trained to yeah. go to university, to take up white collar jobs, to be in positions of power. Mm. The not smart kids are going to go into vocational qualifications. When I was in England, they were called GNVQs. I don't know what they're called now, but yeah, wh- whatever vocational track it is. Yeah. Um, and, and of course there's class involved in, in yeah. all of this. There's also race involved in all of this. Yeah. So the white kids who have parents that the school thinks, oh yeah, they're really involved parents. They will get more of a pass. They'll get more leniency. The black kids are going to get singled out for discipline. In the US, we talk about the school to prison pipeline where yeah. you know a, a black kid will wear a hoodie and have the hood up. If a white kid's caught doing that, maybe nobody even says anything. For the black kid, it's a detention. It's three detentions and you're suspended. You're suspended too many times. You're expelled. And, you know, mm. what follows from there? The school to prison pipeline. And so <laughs> a couple of days ago, my, my my daughter and I talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> and she, she was hanging out with a friend and she came home and, and she reported this conversation to me. She said, she said, she's, she just turned nine. Her, her birthday is actually today. She's turning nine today. Oh, wow. She had... Uh, <laughs> a conversation with her friend and she she said to her friend you know school is is preparing you to succeed in our culture and her friend's like no it isn't we're just learning stuff <laughs> and so when you're in it as i you know was in it i w- i went yeah. to, to universal school public school mm-hmm. as well and it's just you just keep putting one foot in front of the other you get rewarded with the grades because that's what everybody else is doing yeah. and i didn't see the training that was happening. Mm. And our kids today don't see the training that's happening. I don't think even the parents see the training. No. You know, it's just like, if sometimes I just want to shout, what are we doing here? (laughs) What's the project? Yes. You know, yeah. And to be so steeped in the system that it's even difficult to question it is then obviously. Yeah. Because we went through it. And all the neighbor's kids are going through it and everybody we know's kids are going through it. So that's just the thing to do. Mm. So yeah, we do, I think you call it home educating in England. We we homeschool. We're using the unschooling model where we don't have a curriculum. There's nobody telling us you must learn this by this date. And so I don't think homeschooling is the, the one right and only answer. You know, Summerhill obviously was the model that even Sudbury schools here in the US were built on, where where learning is child-led, child-driven, not teacher-driven, not curriculum-driven, because we know that children can learn. You know, they they learn an entire language with no formal instruction. They learn how to walk. <laughs> they yeah. learn a lot about social relationships just by observing things. And it isn't until we put them in school where they stop wanting to, to really understand their world. And all of a sudden, all they want to know is, do I have to learn this? You know, will it be on the test? <laughs> and yeah. how do I do this thing you're asking me to do? Because they know that they're going to be rewarded from get for getting from where they are to the answer in the shortest, most efficient path. Mm-hmm. There's no value given to meandering journeys, to explorations, to things that don't work along the way. It's just how do I get from A to B in the shortest time possible? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I I think we have to to just explode that system and be in relationships with children in our families and in our schools that are consent based mm. that they really a, a lot of the curriculum if you can call it that mm. is about how to be in respectful relationships with others because i do not think that white supremacy that patriarchy that capitalism can exist 
in a culture that where we all truly respect each other. Mm. It's so true. Things, it's just kind of things. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that feels also just so hopeful. Sorry. Yeah. It's a, like, it's a big, it's, it's a huge thing. I'm thinking about okay. also, you know how you're saying just the learning happens like that A to B learning. We found with my son, who's also nine, that when he started at like the local school, that they had this dreadful, oh, what is it called? The pot of gold. And it was basically this like public shaming device yeah. where it was like behavior management system. Yeah. yeah. And he was so anxious about that that mm-hmm. I'm not sure he took anything in. Like if yeah. when he came home, he would tell you what he ate. And he would tell you who was where on the chart. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh, this is not good. And so we spoke to the school and they were actually very receptive and they don't use it anymore, which is amazing. But it obviously took some time. But for me, the biggest part of all of that, I kind of feel like you can learn anything in your life. It's if you're interested in something, there's always a way to access that learning. And for yeah. me, the emotional damage of school is so worrying in terms of, like you're saying, this training that happens that we know, like ourselves personally, is so hard to unlearn and mm-hmm. to think of the sort of I don't like to say wasted life because I don't think life can be wasted, but that we're using time learning things that then we'll just have to spend another 20 years learning in therapy (laughs) programs like yours. And I just think, okay, this is not useful. This is not a useful, like, it's not a, like a happy connected way to live. No, no, it's Mm -hmm. not. And yeah, I think uh, capitalism has been very successful in establishing the scarcity mindset. And that if my child doesn't learn this fact by this date and therefore the next fact by the next date and so on and pass this test and get into the right university and all this stuff, they won't be able to get ahead Mm. by which we mean buying their own house and then filling it with stuff. Because if we all live alone, (laughs) we all need our own, you know, stoves and (laughs) fridges and um, lawnmowers and cars and everything because the houses are so spread out. We have to (laughs) take longer getting between them and so, yeah, so capitalism has been super successful in in separating us and then uh, separating us physically and also emotionally and then creating products to fill that void. And so ultimately, when we talk about our children getting ahead, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, we're sort of replicating the stage where we're at now. And many of us may think, well, I'm fine, but are we really, right? Mm-hmm. Are, we, are we really fine or are we really kind of lost and lonely and feeling as though if I showed up in the world as my whole true full self, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't be accepted because mm. I probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Like there's evidence so, of that all the time. It's not like absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and, and that's reinforced right mm. throughout our interactions with people. When we, when we try and push a boundary a little bit, we get our hand slapped and, oh, no, no, that's not okay. It's not okay for you to show up. It's not okay for you to ex- express that need. It's not okay for you to not shave your legs. <laughs> it's yeah. not okay for you to have a body of a certain size, mm-hmm. right? All of those things are not okay. You need to modify your behavior. So, so yeah, if if the definition of a fulfilled life is getting ahead and and having lots of stuff, then schools are an excellent preparation for that. <laughs> but if we can see how much that hurt us, then maybe we can choose a different path. And so I just want to, you know, yes, it's a huge topic and I don't want to leave listeners with the idea that, well, I can't change. It's too overwhelming. Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. So, so yes, we can talk to our schools. You were successful in changing Mm. that system. I would caution that we should be talking to a lot of the people in our child's classroom. Mm -hmm. I think particularly here in the US, there's a a tendency for well-meaning white parents to advocate for changes they want to see. And that uh, some some parents may may be very happy with the behavior management system and Mm -hmm. may think that their child benefits from it. And I think we white parents need to be very cautious about the changes Mm -hmm. that we push on people from from all backgrounds. But no matter what environment we're in, what happens in school, we can still have these conversations with our children at home. We can still talk to them about what we see happening, right? Oh yeah, the behavior management system. How much do we want to get invested in that? Can can we see that really it's a game where they're trying to manipulate us? Do I want the prize at the top, in which case I'm going to play along? <laughs> if the prize is an ice cream, you know what? Let's go get an ice cream. Let's do it today. I don't care what your behavior was like at school today. <laughs> That's what we did with the stickers. We were like, you want stickers? Yeah, you have them. them. <laughs> yeah, and, and now maybe you can kind of see how the game is being played and you can play it to the extent that you choose to play it, but that you're not playing it because you don't see another option. Yeah, and that your worth is tied in and yes. you know, scary stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that's you. a very Sorry. different conversation that we can have at home with our children. Mm. That's entirely within our purview. Doesn't require yeah. any change whatsoever to happen at the school. Yeah. Okay. Comforting. Yeah. Thank you, Jen. I I keep thinking of people that I would love to connect you with as well. And I see that you like on your beautiful podcast that you've even had people like Bessel van der Kolk. So maybe you're already very well connected, but um, <laughs> maybe afterwards, yeah, I'd love to share just a few names that have popped into my head. And I think, yeah, yeah lots of crossover with, I would- uh, yeah. But thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight. And is there anything you'd like to say in closing or anything I haven't asked you? I mean, I guess I would come back to always, what is the need? What is the unmet need? If something is confusing, overwhelming, scary, unmanageable, somebody, if, if I'm feeling overwhelmed, I have an unmet need. If my child is doing something that is driving me up the wall, they are trying to do it to meet a need. Mm-hmm. If our, the system that's in place at our school seems just bizarre, like why are they using these systems that we know hurt children? They're doing it to meet a need. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> The yeah, teacher yeah. is using it to meet a need. When we can mm-hmm. understand that, we can try to look for ways that meet the other person's need mm-hmm. and that also meet our need. And, and to me, that's, that's the foundational shift that we're making here in this work that, that makes parenting so much easier today because our children don't resist when their needs are met because there's nothing to resist. Yeah. <laughs> and also brings about the possibility that we can create a world where everybody's needs are seen and met. And then these social forces that have harmed us so much, we, we will start to heal from them and 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 disrupt them, dismantle them rather than mm. perpetuate them into the next generation. So I think that's that's the hope, the promise mm. that I would leave parents with. Which still sounds so radical. And I feel hopeful that one day it will not be that radical. I hope so too. (laughs) Thank you, Jen. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I find it very hopeful playing with the idea of needs and that sometimes when we're in conflict with our kids or even with ourselves, 
that we might be missing something about needs and that it is possible both to kind of figure out what these needs are and that we get to have our needs negotiated and met in a family unit is I think a very hopeful thing not just for our families but for the world I would love to hear any feedback about the episode any experiences of kind of implementing this way of parenting or this way of thinking if this is new to you and if this is very kind of familiar to you then yeah I welcome all the feedback all the stories it's always a joy to hear from you all of the links are in the show notes and but if you would like to get in touch to talk about working together or to get in touch with Jen please do let me know okay I will see you next week take care bye